We're reading from Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 13, and it will be on the screen behind me as well as in, on page 730 in your Blue Bibles. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down. Because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favour, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and we'll have compassion on his afflicted ones. Thanks, Alan. Uh, it's good to be back at Colonel Light Gardens. Uh, kids seem to get, get taller every time I'm back. Graham has a wah-wah pedal now, and I'm just, <laughs> feel like I don't even recognize this place anymore. So, no, it's, uh, it's great to be back and great to be uh, here. Uh, as Matt said, I'm Luke, if we haven't met, so... Uh, I, my family and I are members at Trinity Tonsley. Uh, I'm also a lecturer at the Bible College, South Australia, so I teach Old Testament. So uh, if you're interested in chatting about Bible College or what's going on in Tonsley, it'd be great to, to catch up and to get to meet you a bit more. Uh, so as, as Matt introduced, we are continuing on in the book of Isaiah. And as we get started, I wonder if you, just to ask yourself a question. What are the promises that have been made to you that you, that you find hope, 
security, comfort. Maybe it's the, uh, the promise of retirement, that if you, that if you place enough uh, in your superannuation account, you'll live a good life. Maybe, maybe it's the promise of a good degree or a good certification, good training, that if you have the degree, if you have the training, you will in turn get the right job. And if you have the right job, then you'll have the right marriage and you'll have enough money. And so therefore, you know, happily ever after, you live the perfect life. Maybe you're a teenager and it's the promise of a car. Man, right? Parents of mom and dad have promised the car. They're even going to pay for the insurance. You're not going to be bound by them anymore. Oh, gosh, what a life that will be. Maybe it's the promise of a, conti- uh, of a summer holiday each summer. You get like one of these great whatever this is. <laughs> that each summer you're guaranteed this holiday. And in this holiday, I'm going to relax I will be healthy, I hope. Every teacher and student feels that, right? That's the promise of of teachers and students. What about the promises of future relationships, restored relationships? Maybe, Maybe they're broken right now, but there's the hope that it will be solved in the future, and therefore there'll be comfort and security in that. Now, some of these things are good promises, you know, they, they lead to uh, betterment of life. Um, but ultimately, they're, they're small and they fail. You know, markets change. So, you, you know, I got an invoice from my super. It went down. Um, relationships fall apart. Job markets shift. Cars get in wrecks. Now, so our, our confidences and comfort in security are dependent upon the person making them, right? When you're promised something small, the reliability of that person doesn't really matter all that much, okay? You don't have to be a really reliable person to deliver something small. But what about large promises? Large promises of security, comfort, the good life, Your confidence is linked directly to the person who makes the promise. The larger the promise, the more resources and more faithful that person must be in order to deliver them. Okay. So this morning we're uh, continuing in the series on Isaiah, as Matt introduced the last couple weeks. And uh, this is a book directed to a group of Israelites who are about to go into exile. They're being banished from their land because of their sin. Uh, but, it, but, the, but the book doesn't end there, doesn't end with their banishment. It also renews in chapter 40, which is this section that we're looking at, that there is comfort for the future. There is a promise as they are coming back that you will be comforted. And so Isaiah wants to bring a word of comfort to this people who are about to go out. And the promise is, you are going to be delivered. You are going to come back. And the way you're going to come back is through the work of a servant. Okay, And so their comfort, this this group of Israelites, their comfort is directly linked to the promise giver. 
the one who is promising comfort. And so this passage, I think, is a, a good one for us to listen to and hear this morning because it seems to be a human experience that we, we derive comfort and security in the hopes of the future. What we anticipate about the future gives us satisfaction now. Okay? And so the passage, our passage this morning from Isaiah 49, as Helen uh, read for us, is uh, that we should find comfort in the servant who's been both appointed for the task of salvation and will also lead us in a worldwide pilgrimage. Okay? So our first point uh, in the outline then is uh, that the servant has been appointed for the role. Okay? So our passage begins in verse 1. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Okay? So our passage begins with a calling. Okay? Look. Hear, listen, pay attention. Have you ever been in a context where all of a sudden somebody kind of busts through the door and says, pay attention? Usually that happens as a teacher or student. Uh, but we listen when somebody calls us to listen when they have authority, when they are, they are in a place to grab our attention. And so the servant then here begins with a call to pay attention because he has the authority to do so. He has authority. We're to pay attention because he's been appointed as the servant. Okay? He has been appointed to restore and redeem. Okay? And so this servant then has been appointed from his birth. If you read on in verse 1, before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. His role of a servant isn't something that he just stumbled into. It's not like a, I don't know, sometimes you see this with politicians, right? They were very successful businessmen or women, and they decided, you know what, I'm going to give a crack at, you know, solving a country's problems. That's not the servant's role. The servant actually has, from the very beginning, he's been appointed before birth. And not only has he been appointed, but he's also been equipped for the job. He actually has what it takes so if we look at verse 2, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. So the servant, he has a mouth like a sword. It means he conquers with his word. He's hidden in God's hand. He's, he has protection from, by God. He's an arrow that's been concealed. So he's not a, he's not a last-minute decision. God is waiting for the appropriate time to send him. So this appointment of the servant who is equipped for the job, what has he been appointed to do? Well, verse 3, he's been appointed to display the glory of God. Verse 3, he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. So the servant here, has been called Israel. He's been given the name of the nation. He is appointed to be for the nation what the nation had failed, the people of God failed to do. That is, to display the splendor of the Lord to the nations. You know, the people of Israel were delivered from Egypt in the Exodus, and they were appointed to be God's servants to display his glory, and through them, God is going to reverse the effects of sin. 
problem, though, is that this people are very sinful. So sinful because they've walked away from the Lord. And so they deserve his judgment. Now, you know, and this is such a great example of what the gospel is. The gospel is that we've walked away from the Lord. We've rejected his rule. And so we deserve his condemnation. But God doesn't just leave it there, does he? He actually here sends his servant to be for us what we could not be. He doesn't send the servant because his people are good enough or because they're righteous enough and so therefore they deserve it. No, he he sends his servant to be for them what they could not be. He sends the servant to extend his splendor to the ends of the earth. So the, so the servant has been appointed as the one whom God will display his glory. Now, in verse 5, then we see that the servant recognizes that he's been appointed, and he's been appointed to bring salvation. Verse 5, and now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and to gather Israel to himself. Okay, so he, he's there to rescue this people that are going into, going into exile. But the servant's work is not limited only to this historical people. You see, the servant's goal, his role, is to display the glory of the Lord to the entire world. You see, Israel is far too small. Too small of a place. Verse 6, it is too small of a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Your salvation, Israel is far too small. God saving you is far too small of a thing. As great as that is, it's too small of a thing. It's too small of a thing for God, his salvific ends to be limited to kernel-like gardens or to Tonsley. To Adelaide, Australia. It is God's salvation is going forward to all the nations. What great plans God has. That He is restoring everything that has been made wrong, He is making right. He has appointed the servant in order to do so. Now you think, okay. The servant has been appointed from birth. He's been given the right tools for the job. He's got a great vision of what this looks like. You think smooth sailing, right? No. Actually, we see his appointment is met with opposition and frustration. Look at verse 4. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. He confesses that his labor has felt futile. Israel, his, this people that he's supposed to save, these nations that are to recognize him, respond poorly. They have not loved one another. They have not loved the Lord. His work has felt like there's been no outcome to it. I think we can all feel that, right? We've had jobs or we've had tasks that feel like, man, why, why put in all this effort? If this is the way people are going to respond, if this is the way it's going to be frustrating, 
You think about all the work you put into a particular relationship that you care about, but then yet that person does not return that relationship to you. Maybe you're the one that always calls and tries to keep it up, and you're just like, man, it'd be nice for you to call me back. You think about the work of telling your, your family members about the Lord Jesus, his love, but you're, you're met with the stiff arm of opposition. You try to invite your coworkers to different events here at church. You just try to establish relationship, and it feels, man, just opposition and futile. But in spite of the frustration that the servant feels, he also trusts the Lord in the midst of the opposition and in the midst of the frustration. In verse 4, he says, um, Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. God's going to vindicate him. The reward of the servant is, is left with the Lord. Right? And perhaps this should be an encouragement. When we feel that frustration and that just being discouraged, when we feel like the work we have is um, being frustrated, we should find encouragement that Jesus' work was this way as well. Right? You know, we read over and over in the Gospels as, as Jesus is uh, ministering, that he is also met with opposition. So may, may we take kind of a, a page from the servant here that we trust in the results to the Lord. That we wait for God's vindication. And so the servant's declaration then uh, of his appointment is meant to give us great comfort for a couple reasons. Okay? First, it shows us that The servant's appointment and his equipping is something that God has set from the beginning. Salvation wasn't some afterthought from God. It wasn't, you know, it's not just like a, you know, like I said, a politician who just decides one day I'm going to just try to solve the world's problems. No, this was God's ordained plan. Salvation's not going to come through materialism. It's not going to come through uh, self-enlightenment. Likewise, it's not going to come through your own self-righteousness. No, your salvation comes in the servant who's been appointed for the task from the beginning. Do you remember uh, in Matthew 1 when the angel appears to Joseph? His message was to Joseph that that, uh, his betrothed Mary is going to have a baby and that she's carrying this baby who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and that you're going to name him Jesus which means salvation. He's to name him Jesus because he's going to save them. He's going to save them from their sins. Okay? So we take great comfort in that our salvation, our comfort, our security is not an afterthought of God. Actually, it's one that he's established from the beginning. Secondly, the domain of the servant is over all nations. It is too small of a thing that salvation should just be for you. You know, see, God's intention is worldwide. If Jesus' salvation was only for Judah in the 8th century, we'd say, hey, that's a great thing for them, but we would still be needing comfort. We would still be needing security, right? So how wonderful is that promise in verse 6 that it is too small of a thing? The salvation that Jesus brings is worldwide in its dimension because God's glory is creation-wide in its splendor. 
God is concerned with his salvation, not just in Colonel Light Gardens, not just in Tonsley. He is concerned with his salvation to go worldwide because that is the effects of sin. The effects of sin are worldwide. And so salvation must likewise be so. And Jesus is the one who has been appointed to do so. Okay. So the servant in verses 1 to 6, the servant has been appointed for the task. And now in verses 7 to 12, we see what the promises that the servant has. Okay, Verse 7, we see that the servant is despised, but yet victorious. Verse 7, this is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of the ruler. So we see the servant is despised. By the very ones he's come to save, right? Feels a bit like us sometimes. But yet he is victorious. Though despised by the nation, the servant has the obedience of them. How does, how does one who is despised and become victorious? Well, we see it's because of the faithful Holy One. Because of the Lord who is faithful the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. He has answered and helped the servant. And so we see what is, what is the means of victory of the servant? What, how does this happen? Well, it comes through his suffering. Victory, salvation, redemption comes through suffering. And that is the paradox of the gospel, right? Victory comes through being a servant, those who are lofty will be made low. And so the servant is victorious through his suffering. And what is the goal of this victory? Well, verses 8 to 12 tell us that. Verse 8, he is, he is made a serv, uh, he has made the servant a covenant to his people. He has is, restored the relationship. So the, the covenant relationship that was broken because of sin is being restored by the servant on behalf of the people. Isn't that wonderful? What we have broken, the Lord Jesus has solved. In verse 8, he will restore them to the land. The land that was promised to them, a home. A place where they would dwell with the Lord, their God. This is what the Garden of Eden was all about. A place to dwell with God, but yet because of sin, they've been exiled. And now here in a new land... Sin has also come again, and they will be exiled again. But what do we see? He, God is going to restore their place. He is going to give them a new home. And this is what the book of Revelation sees as the new heavens and the new earth. That God promises that this servant is going to bring about a new place for this new people. Verse 8, we also see that the servant reestablishes the inheritances and the blessings that were lost. Everything that was lost is being restored. So how, how are all these promises done? How are they fulfilled? Well, verse 9 tells us it is the power of his word. Look at verse 9. To say to the captives, come out. And to those in darkness, be free. The promises of salvation are through the power of his call. Come out, show yourselves. It is the power of the message of the gospel. To, the, the call to come out of darkness, 
Stop your striving to find your security and your comfort in the materialism of our world. Stop striving and trying to be autonomous, to be your own God. Come out and find your satisfaction in the servants. I think you know, many of us are here because we've felt that call. We've, we've heard it, even, even if we spent years rejecting it. At a point, we've heard the call to come out and to receive Christ's salvation. We've had friends probably who were the ones who continued to share it. Praise God for those friends, for our parents and uh, for the ministry of the gospel. And so the power of these promises are, are through the word of the servant. And what is the, the result of the call in verses nine, starting in verse 9 is a pilgrimage. The picture of salvation is of a pilgrimage. Verse 9 is they are, they are they're walking and they are fed and satisfied with food. They will be fed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. Verse 10, they won't hunger or thirst. They are led by springs of water. And all the roots are, are, made, are made accessible. The mountains are turned into roads and highways appear. The barriers that once kept the people out are being removed and transformed. And in verse 12, we see that the nations, as far as one can imagine, come. From the north, from the west, even to the southern parts of Egypt. It's kind of the image of the known world at this time. As far as one can imagine, the barriers have been transformed to make roots for the pilgrimage. This all takes place, the call, the pilgrimage, because of Verse 10, he who has compassion on them will guide them. How amazing. This is the picture of the gospel. You don't deserve it. All your striving is useless, but God is compassionate. How amazing is the compassion of God. Though you don't deserve it, he will call you. Though you don't deserve it, he will lead you and he will provide all that your heart desires, the satisfaction and the security that you crave. How often do we read of the compassion of the Lord Jesus in the Gospels? I mean, actually, uh, I think it's in Mark's Gospel, that's just a key term. He sees people and has compassion on them. He sees their sickness and he heals them. He sees their hunger and he feeds them. He sees their sins and forgives them. The compassion of God. And so how, how do we respond to such a compassionate God? Well, verse 13 gives us a hint. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. So the pas our passage encloses with how creation is to respond to the pilgrimage of salvation. 
This is not, of course it is, because God's glory and his splendor is creation-wide, it is likewise that creation itself should rejoice in the salvation of the Lord Jesus. And it's not only the responsibility of creation that will respond in joy, it is the response of the servant's people. Shout for joy. Rejoice. What promises, what promises does this world give us to comfort in? Well, some of those promises are, are of autonomy, financial security, the hope of relationship, the hope to get into a degree, the hope of a sport, the freedom of no longer being in mom and dad's house. The, comfort, the Christian worldview teaches that comfort comes in the promises of the servant. And that through the suffering of the servant, joy and restoration come. Okay. So the extension of this gospel message then is that the, nations, uh, lead, uh, that the nations lead a call from the servant. They hear it and that the heavens and mountains sing for joy because God has brought comfort. And so this gives us a picture that, of what the Christian life is. The Christian life is a, a pilgrimage being led by God's compassionate and suffering servant. Not because of our own autonomy, not because of our materialism, not even because we're really swell people. Those who follow Christ have heard this call. And so if, you, if, you're, here, if you're here today and you've never heard the gospel or uh, maybe today it's just become real, the servant's call is to come out. Leave the darkness. And so Colonel Light Gardens, just like Tonsley, we are, we are churches continue to be shaped and transformed by the work of the servant. The servant Jesus Christ. We give, we give thanks that the work of the servant has come to us. That message has come. That we are the beneficiaries of his work. As salvation is going to the ends of the earth, we here are beneficiaries of that. And so the church, we continue in this message that Jesus' last commands to us were to go to all nations, and there are nations continuing waiting to hear. Nations that have not heard the message of the gospel, they have no church, they have no scriptures in their own language. And so the work of the church is to continue to proclaim the gospel message, the gospel message of grace, that though deserving God's condemnation, he has sent the servant Lord Jesus to us. And so let me just invite us as I close is to, to rejoice in that message, to rejoice in the appointment of the, of the servant, to rejoice in the promises that he has because he is a compassionate God who is leading us in a pilgrimage towards a new place with him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, we give you thanks that in the Lord Jesus you have appointed a servant, that you have equipped him. And through the paradox of his suffering, you have brought victory. Through the paradox of being made low, you give us all. So help us, God, 
to respond in great joy that your salvation is too small for Israel. It is too small for Colonel Light Gardens. It is creation-wide. And so as we, as we serve you, as we walk day by day in this pilgrimage, that we would continue to be faithful servants ourselves as we continue to proclaim the compassion of the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.